it's just a great blessing. Open your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of 2 Timothy. And while you're turning there, I want to mention another verse found way back in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles chapter number 12. And uh, there we find it speaking about David's followers and those from Ishkiar as being men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. That is such an important factor. And I wish the same could be said of, of all of us today. Uh, most people today simply don't get the picture. Uh, life is difficult for everyone. It's been that way ever since the fall. But each generation has its own particular set of problems to deal with. I can think back whenever I was a boy and we had problems then that you don't have today and vice versa. So every generation has certain difficulties that they have to deal with. But regardless of what period of history you live in, there are certain needs that never change. And with that in mind, I want to speak to you today about in times like these. And I want you to consider what God expects from us, regardless of what century you might live in. Doesn't make any difference. We find out here what God expects. Now, if I was preaching about times like these, uh, I would turn to chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. And I mean, you're thinking about well, isn't that what you're preaching about? No, that's not what I said. If I was preaching about times like these, we'd look at chapter 3. But I'm talking this morning about in times like these. There's a big difference. In chapter 3, he's describing what it will be like in the last days. In other words, he's revealing what the characteristics of of society's going to look like. But today I'm talking about end times like these, and it has to do with what we ought to do, with what we ought to do in the times that we live in. That's what he was talking about when he mentioned David's followers. They, they were men that had understanding. If they were going to be in of use to David, they had to be men of understanding, but they had understanding of the times of the times uh, in which they lived. And then it says to know what Israel ought to do. All of us ought to know what we ought to do, right? But it's pretty obvious that observing the lives of a lot of people, they evidently, they don't know what they ought to do or they don't care what they should do because their manner of life, whether it's their actions or their attitude, tells us that they are nowhere near where they should be. I don't want that to be my fault. And it would, at least in part, be my fault. If they didn't know what to do, and I'm their pastor, and I haven't instructed them, then I'm to blame for their ignorance. 
I don't want that to be my fault. I want to make sure it's my responsibility to feed the sheep, as the Bible says, my obligation to make known to folks what God expects from us. Inspiration is a great thing. Uh, We all need inspiration. But inspiration without proper instruction leads nowhere. Doesn't get us anywhere. If we don't know what we ought to be doing, we can be excited about whatever we're doing, but if we're headed in the wrong direction, we're going to end up in the wrong place. And I'm glad the Bible points us in the right direction. So with that in mind, I want you to look at chapter number 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and that's our text. Not a particular verse, but all of the verses. This was Paul's last letter, and keep in mind that it was written during a time when Christianity was under attack. And so Paul is writing this against the backdrop of persecution. And by the way, he mentions that in every single chapter that I'm writing to you in this time of persecution, this time of hardship, this time of difficulty. And considering what's going on in the world today, we ought to pay close attention to what Paul says because in many parts of the world, Christianity is, uh, is under attack. Christians are being persecuted. Christians are being murdered. Even here in our so-called sophisticated society here in America, we think that we shall escape Maybe we will and maybe we won't, but make no mistake about it, we are under attack. The writings of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and on and on that list could go is an example of what I'm talking about because their books have become at the top of the bestseller list according to the New York Times. That tells us a lot of people are reading their garbage and if you want to know in a nutshell what their thinking is, it's the idea of criminalizing Christianity. Let that sink in for a minute. Criminalizing Christianity. Maybe you're thinking, well, that, that we could never get to that place, or could we? Would it be possible for us as Christians to be censored by the government because of the fact that we preach what the Bible teaches about homosexuality? Now, I could spend the uh, whole hour talking about all of the dangers we face in this regard. But if you're thinking, if you're thinking that we shall escape unscathed this attack from the world, you're mistaken. I'll guarantee you right now, if Bill Gates and some others had their way right now, these churches would all be empty. They consider us not just radical, but fanatical and out of touch with, with reality. That's the society that we're living in. And so Paul reminds them in every single chapter that I'm well aware of what you're going through in these great difficulties, and then he drops that bombshell later on where he says, and it's going to get worse than that. So in light of all of that, 
Paul begins this letter here in chapter 1 by teaching us how we should live in times like these. And we see five things that leap out at us and cry for our attention. After the introduction in the first two verses, in verse number 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that in thee also." Whenever I look at these three verses here, in regards to the manner that we ought to live, Paul is saying in essence that we ought to enjoy rather than to exasperate. Instead of getting to that point of panic that we ought to enjoy the life that God has given with us. Notice there in verse 4, that I may be filled with joy. Now, we look at that and we consider the circumstances, the things that I just mentioned, what they were going through, the difficulties that they faced. And it might seem amazing that the first thing Paul starts writing about here is the matter of joy, our attitude that is to be maintained during these difficult times. And he starts by, first of all, looking for something to be thankful for. And he didn't have to look very far because he said to, to Timothy, I thank God for you, for what I see in you and was first in your mother and in your grandmother. The first thing he does is to find something to be thankful for, and that shouldn't surprise us because we as Christians always have a reason to rejoice, to be thrilled by being thankful and cultivating this attitude of gratitude. And by the way, those that, that are lacking in this area are never going to enjoy life. They're never going to be happy. So our happiness is bound up in this matter of us being thankful for the things that God has done. And an attitude of gratitude is one of the most therapeutic things in all of the world. It's helpful and it's healing to have a thankful heart. That's why Nehemiah said that the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So Paul starts out by talking about the need for us to have joy in our heart instead of caving in and throwing up our hands in despair and giving up. And we need to be reminded of that in our difficulties, whatever we're going through, whether it's cancer, heart disease, or this virus or that virus or whatever else. If all we do is sit back and sulk about all of our problems and all of our difficulties, we're going to be absolutely miserable. And we have reason to rejoice because we always have something to be thankful for. Always. The devil can't take that away. You know, everything else might be gone, but the blessings of the Lord are always there. 
So let that be on our list. At the top of our list as Christians that we are to enjoy this life. Rejoice in the Lord always, the Bible says. Not occasionally. It's really easy, you know, when everything's going our way. But the Bible tells us it's our responsibility regardless of what the situation is. Even when you stand at the graveside of a loved one with tear in your eye, even in a time like that, in order to cope with that tragedy in your life, the best way to do it is to set your mind upon something to be thankful for and to rejoice that the grace of God has provided that. Enjoy. Now notice verse 6 and 7. We see that we ought to excel rather than to just exist. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that, from, that, that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Difficulties are difficult, right? They're discouraging. I don't think I've ever met anybody that got up in the morning. The first thing they prayed is, Lord, I'd, re I'd really like to have a, a wagon load of difficulties today. We're never looking for it. We don't pray for it. It's not something that we want. And it can be discouraging. And discouragement can be deadly. As every Christian, regardless of who you are, sooner or later, you're going to discover that life is difficult. We start off, you know, when we're first saved, how exciting it is. And I'll never forget that day that I walked out of Community Baptist Church in Willard, Missouri, having just received Christ as my Savior, and my, whew, it seemed like the whole world had been lifted off of my shoulders. Uh, as I've said before, it seemed like the birds were all singing amazing grace and that I was just floating off the ground. I, I've never... I just never had experienced anything like that. Knowing Christ is my Savior, all of my sins have been forgiven. I'm going to heaven. And boy, I, I, more than anything else, I wanted to serve the Lord. And I started out with those high hopes and those lofty ideals, a wagon load of determination. I want to do whatever God wants me to do. And boy, so highly motivated to just do whatever, moving toward that goal that God has. And you see, usually it's then with new Christians that they're willing to accept almost any challenge, those things that stretch them to their limits. And they're excited and it shows. Life becomes an adventure. We can't wait to see what tomorrow holds. It's exciting. And then it happens. Whatever it is. Whatever it is, it happens. And it always happens to everyone. It might be different for you than it was for somebody else, but it is going to happen sooner or later. And then again, you get hit with another it and another one, and over and over and over. And finally, you find yourself living in a survival mode. I'll never forget reading the testimony of a young preacher but he wasn't so young then. 
when he made this statement, but he was talking about back whenever he had surrendered to preach and went to seminary and started out. And he spoke about his, his dream of being used of God to change the world. Wow. I, I, want, I want to get out there and preach the gospel. I'm going to, I want God to use me to change the world. And then he went on and expressed the fact that after the years had passed and the difficulties had increased and he saw the futility of trying to change unsaved people, he said, now I'm just trying to survive. You'd be surprised how many pastors in, in this world today are just trying to survive. They're, they're just trying to make it to the end. God forbid that that happens to, to any pastor. That's the time whenever you, you need to step aside and get out of the way if all you're going to do is just survive. We've got more to do than to survive. We have God's pure word to preach to a world in desperate need of its cleansing power. We've got something they can't get anywhere else. It's our job to get that message out. But in that survival mode... Now listen to me, because I'm not just talking about preachers. I'm talking about the fact that it can happen to all of us Christians. We get in this survival mode, trying to hang on for dear life, and now our focus is on our misery instead of our ministry, instead of our mission. Now I say all of that because based on what Paul wrote, I believe that Timothy was in that condition. I say that because notice he says, and it's not without reason, he makes this statement. Stir up the gift of God. He's telling him, in other words, to stoke the fire, fan the embers, you know, kindle the flames, keep the, keep the drive alive and the fire going. That's what, that's what a lot of folks need to do is stir up the gift of God. Get back on track. Get back in the game. Get back in the fight. Regardless of how much we focus on our misery, it's not going to improve our situation. That is not going to change a thing about the way we feel. But it will sure divert our attention away from what we ought to be doing. Now, I understand that in times of difficulty, we can't always do what we had been doing the way that we were doing it. I understand that. You have to have a different game plan sometimes. So difficulties can affect the way that we do things, but it shouldn't affect the things that we do. Our focus ought to be not on the misery, but on the ministry. But I read this and all of a sudden it dawns on me that, that he doesn't say one word about telling him how to do it. He doesn't say, stir up the gift of God. Now maybe he is assuming that, you know, that Timothy will recall some of the things that he had written before and that he'll be mindful of that, that Timothy already knows what he needs to do, but I... I really think the point is, Timothy, stir up the gift of God, period. And by that, I think he's saying you, you need to do whatever it takes. 
And I think that's exactly what all of us have to do. Whatever it takes to stir up the gift of God, to be not slothful in business, as the Bible says, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So we are to excel, not just exist. Jesus said in John 10, 10, that that he came to give life and to give it what? More abundant. There's the abundant life. The abundant life is not something for, for a select few super saints. The abundant life is to be for all of us. You say, well, what is the abundant life? What does it look like? Oh, it looks like joy unspeakable and full of glory. Not just joy, but joy unspeakable and full of glory, peace that passeth all understanding the love that is beyond knowledge, something we can't even comprehend. That's kind of what it looks like. It certainly means that we're not just hanging on by the skin of our teeth trying to get by and exist and get through life the best we can, but we are excelling And that's why over and over again through all of Paul's writings you find that word abound. Abound in this and abound in that. That's the abundant life. Ever abounding. Now look at verse 8. Beginning here we see the third thing that we need to do in times like these. And that is that we need to engage rather than escape. Now, I know that is very closely related to what I've been talking about, but but I think you'll see the difference. Notice he says in verse number 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Do you get the picture? Do you understand here what Paul is saying? Engage rather than escape. You know, difficulties not only disappoint us, they discourage us. They tend to drag us down, to draw us back, to cause us to desert our duties. And, and, and Paul is saying here, instead of retreating, we ought to charge. Nothing in the world is more important than getting the gospel out, and we need to be unashamed in proclaiming the gospel. Amen. Oh, I'm certain that, that there had been many threats. In fact, not just threats, but Paul could look around and see those that had suffered because they were preaching the gospel. In fact, he knew what it was like. He had been beaten, left for dead, thrown in prison. and all of He knew the cost. But he didn't take one step backwards. It was all advancing, no escape. Standing true to the truth, regardless of whether you're hated and persecuted or not. 
Let me tell you, more than anything else in all of the world, people need the gospel because when we think about trying to some way or another salvage this world and, and transform it into a fit place to live, a utopia, I've got news for you, that's never going to happen. It's a waste of time for us to think we'll ever change the nature of this world anyway other than getting to the root of the problem and society never changes for the better except one person at a time, and that's through the new birth. And that, my friend, requires the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like Paul telling Timothy, here, right in the middle of all of this persecution and all of these difficulties, it's as though he is saying, look, son, you'll never do anything more important than leading a person to a saving knowledge of Christ. And because that's true, it's still true today, we must not isolate ourselves from the world nor allow anything in the world to keep us from proclaiming the gospel. Whatever it is. I said a while ago, I understand that during certain times of difficulty, you know, the ox is in the ditch and we have to we have to adapt. We have to make some changes for that and so on. But listen, we've still got to get the Word of God out, whether it comes from this pulpit or whether it comes from you in a coffee shop somewhere talking to your neighbor or your friend. Our job's to get the gospel out any way we can and all of the time. That requires at least three things. Number one, compassion. We have to, have, we have to care enough to be willing to do it. Compassion, it takes courage to stand up in the face of a world that is known for mocking you, hating you, despising you. It takes courage to stand up and preach a truth that the world denies, but it takes something else. It takes contact. Contact. Believe me, the devil will do everything in his power. He has done everything in his power. To keep us from sowing the seed of the gospel. I mean, he has, as it were, tried to keep us from contact even with one another. I said the other day, it's so difficult even whenever you extend the invitation, invite people to come forward. Look, I'm not inviting anybody to come forward. I don't care if you never come forward. I'm inviting you to respond to the truth of God's Word, and you don't have to be down here to get saved. You can be saved right where you are. It doesn't make any difference where you are. You can be on a bar stool, a church pew, or wherever you are. You can be saved by simply putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But so many times, you know, because of this, because of the hindrance... You know, we don't feel comfortable right now even hugging our brothers and sisters in Christ and shaking hands. And look, we, we, can, we, can, we can survive for a while that way. We don't have to like it, but we can put up with it and survive. But I want to tell you, it, we can't survive, nor can any church, without getting the gospel out beyond the four walls of the church building. And this is the challenge that Paul is giving to Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, but keep preaching it. Do what God commands. Now, that can be easier said than done. Over in Acts 4, 31, 
It says, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake the word of God with boldness. I refer to that verse to remind you of this fact. That whatever it is that God has called us, commanded us to do, the Spirit of God will enable us to do. If God expects it from us, God will make it possible for us. That's what he's saying. Now look at verse 13. Here's the fourth thing that we need to do. And that is endure rather than just excuse ourselves. Verse 13, he says, Hold fast. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest, that all, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. So here, notice that he points out two people, two men with really weird names. <laughs> and he says, they've already forsaken me. And by the way, he's, I think I got on this last week, didn't I, where he's calling them out by name. Oh, well, that's just unheard of today. We wouldn't dare do that in a church service, would we? You know, just point somebody out and say, well, you know, Joe and old Bob, they, they've already deserted the faith, been unfaithful to the church. Now, it wouldn't be very popular. Now, remember, Paul is writing this. This is, this is God's Word going out for everybody to see and to hear about. Of course, he was, Paul's nicer than I would be. He's kind of like saying, these dirty, rotten rascals just left me high and dry. They just, you know, skipped out of town on me. But he says, notice, hold fast. And then he says in verse 14, notice that word keep. It's telling us that God has entrusted us with the message and the ministry. He's given that to us. And we must not be cowardly or careless or casual about it. Like these two fellows that he just mentioned here. And it's obvious that Paul is deeply disturbed here by their desertion. The fact that they had fallen away. I bet you can think of somebody that's fallen away. You can just look around and see where people that you know, people you love, that they used to be there and they're gone. And it ought to break our heart to think that it happened to them. And it ought to put us on our guard as he's telling us because it could happen to us. That's why Peter said, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for you. He's looking for me. Now look at verse 16. Here we see the fifth thing that we ought to do. In times like these, we ought to encourage rather than to just expect. Verse 16. The Lord hath given mercy unto the house of, of uh, Onesiphorus, 
For he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that, which he, that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in many things, he, in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Now he just talked about two fellows that had left him high and dry, that had deserted him. And now he's talking about a fellow by the name of Onesiphorus John. We call him John. (laughs) I I heard Brother Kenneth earlier trying to read, and I thought to myself back there, why is he trying to read all of those names? (laughs) And I know I can identify with him. I've preached sermons on this guy. I've had the pronunciation down correctly for 50 years because I remember the first time I was corrected many years ago by a young preacher, by the way, that had just graduated from seminary, and I'd preached that morning about Anisophus, and and, uh, he told me after the service, uh, he reminded me that's not the way that you pronounce that word. Well, man, I tell you, I can't, there's a lot of words I can't even pronounce, and I Bea, bless her heart, she's tried to coach me out of this. There's no telling, you know, what I do to the king's English, but how did I get off on all of that? But notice, however you pronounce his name, I know what it means. It means help bringer or prophet bear. Now, he just talked about these two fellows that had fallen by the wayside, and now he turns to an example of someone who had stood with him. And the point is, there's more to enduring. We've been talking about enduring. There's more to enduring than just attending church. We are to to serve. To serve the Lord. And that's what he's doing. And we serve the Lord in different ways, by the way. There's something really important about this, and that's the fact when I look at this and I think about what this man has done to help, to help Paul, the first thing it does is to remind me even the best and strongest of men, people, need help. Amen. There's nobody here beyond the need of needing help. We, we all need that. Paul needed that. And he says that, He says, whenever I was in Rome, and remember, he wasn't in Rome on a vacation. Paul was in prison. And he said, when I was there, it says that he found me. Notice, it says he sought me. Verse 17, he sought me out very diligently and found me. Oh, he could have gone about it in a casual approach and said, man, you know, Rome was a big place. There was a... No doubt a lot of prisons, and he could have said, I've, I've, I've looked, you know, in every prison that I know, I, I'm just going to give up on it. I guess God's not in it. I, I'm just going to figure if God wanted me to meet with him, that, that he had made it possible, and I can't find him. So it's time for me to head back home. And if I remember right, we're talking about a distance of like 2,800-some miles back to back to. That's back to Ephesus. I mean, this is a long ways to go back home. 
But he sought me out diligently. It wasn't one of these things where, uh, Paul, I'm in, you know, I'm in Rome. Is there anything I can do to help? I, I mean, he showed up ready to go, ready to help. He was there, Johnny, on the spot, willing to do whatever needed to be done. And it reminds us that helping others takes effort. You know, we've all got it on our list, don't we? Sure. I mean, that's why we always say, if, you, if, if there's anything I can do, just let me know. Now look, I'm not, I'm not criticizing people that make that statement. I've been there, done that. I know what they mean. Sometimes we, we don't know what to do. But a lot of times people say, you know, if there's anything you need, let me know. And all they'd have to do is take 10 seconds and think for a minute and they could find something that needed to be done that's obvious. And this fellow's like a bulldog with a bone. He won't let go. He is determined that he's going to find him. And he does... And Paul speaks about the great encouragement that was to him. You see, there is a reward whenever we, when we get to the point, you know, we've been talking about all of these difficulties. And this fellow could have said, man, I've got problems of my own. I'm expecting encouragement from others. And sometimes people go through life like that, expecting stuff from others that they never give out to others. And here is a man that became known for his encouragement. The reward, what about that? His name's in the Bible. My name's not in the Bible. Well, well, my name's in there, but it's not me. It's another David. His name is in the Bible. Paul was careful by the direction of the Holy Spirit to record what that man did. Let me tell you, God takes notice of what we all do. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unrighteous. No, He's not. Regardless of how things appear, God's not unrighteous. But He says, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward His name in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And that's why I often say we are always best to ourselves whenever we are good to others. Always. Given the choice, every single one of us would say, you know, I just want to be blessed to the Lord. I want God's blessings on my life. And it's as though God is saying, I've already told you how to get it. Like he said to Abraham, you are blessed to bless. That's the reason God blesses you. Not just so you can enjoy it, but God blesses you so you can be a blessing to somebody else. I am so very thankful to those that time and time and time again have been just like this man. They have sought me out, and not just me, but others. That there are those that look, there are those that feel that way about this church that they love with all of, all of their heart. And you don't have to beg with them and plead with them to respond to a need. They see the need, and man, they're ready to do it because they want this church to be everything that it can be. 
you know, in God's work. And they are investing their lives in things that really matter by doing, they don't just sit back and expect others to be doing for them, but they're involved in doing for others. You're on God's list, he says. He's not unrighteous to forget what you've done. Now, for the Christian, we all know there's five things that regardless, regardless of what the situation is around us, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, those five things are things that God expects from every single one of us. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, God doesn't expect any of that from you at all. In fact, there's really not anything you could even do that would be pleasing to God. Nothing. You can attend church every, every week, read your Bible through. Nothing you do. The Bible says the plowing of the wicked is sin. Just the simple act of plowing for the wicked man is sinful. He can't do anything to please God. Why? Is God that picky? No, it's the fact that that person, until they receive Christ, they're living in open, defiant rebellion against God. Because God says that He has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And you haven't repented until you get to that place that you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you do that this morning? Would you do that right here today? As we stand and during the invitation, just bow your head and say, Dear Lord, I don't understand everything about it, but I know I'm a sinner and I know Jesus is the Savior and I'm trusting Him, trusting His shed blood to save me right here, right now, this morning. And I believe He will and I put my trust in Him. And I promise you on the authority of God's Word that He will do just what He promised. And then I want you to come, get out of your seat, walk down that aisle and come up here. You don't have to shake anybody's hand. Just look us in the eye and say, I have received Christ as my Savior this morning. We want to rejoice with you. It might be that some Christians here today and say, Brother Pastor, I've gotten off track. I've been so focused on my misery, I forgot about my ministry. I forgot what God wants me to be doing. And you're going to get back on track today. Father, use your word this morning to challenge our hearts, to change our lives. Lord, you've given us this information, as it were. You've given us your expectations. Now, Lord, give us the strength to carry through on what we know is the right thing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Always saved.